Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So tomorrow is primary election day, the mayor's race and city council races, some municipal races. Uh, but uh, some other municipal races outside the city, of course. But most everything goes to April 4th, uh, though there will be some aldermanic races. And there's 15 open seats, 15 out of 50. Right. It's a pretty big turnover. That uh, may be decided tomorrow. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 646-36DA, turnkey.pro text line. I know there's been allegedly a, a lot of early voting. and 193,000 ballots. I don't consider. Yeah. Do you consider that a lot? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, two point eight, two point seven, okay. going down, going down, going um, down, down. But, but I mean, you also have to consider first time for mail in voting. Um, I mean, you know, writ large, not just for uh, narrow absentee purposes, and uh, the turnover that's happening in the aldermanic races, and some people may be motivated by the lawlessness in the city and uh, all, all the campaigns that have any resources, any organization doing their own VBM programs, because that's what you do now in the post COVID era of elections. So is that really uh, indicating a unusually high turnout or is it just indicative of distributing a customary turnout over different modes of voting? Probably more so the latter than the former. I mean, I, I don't know what people are super excited about with respect to the mayor's race other than to rush out to vote against Lori Lightfoot. That that really seems to me the only or perhaps the main motivation. When yep. you talk to people about this race, you hear a lot of anyone but Lightfoot responses. Well, I wanted to ask you, too. Or at least a reckoning for Lightfoot. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about any, all these polls showing anywhere between 14 to 19 percent that are undecided. Uh, is that a big deal, Dan? No, that's not a big. That's I mean, common. That, that's normal. That, that's, that's not a nine-person race, and and people just paying attention. I mean, look, one in five vote. I mean, no, like one in six. Between one in ten and one in six voters, so ten to fifteen percent, let's call it, will make their minds up when they go into the polls. So um, a lot of people tune in late. A lot of people make decisions late. They don't make decisions until they're actually faced with it. So that's not unusual. I was at uh, uh, the Amari yesterday for early voting, and there was a big turnout. And a lot of people, you know, I was just standing out there talking to people. And a lot for Brandon Johnson. Very excited. But, but again, what you just said is more of a vote against Mayor Lightfoot. Right. So it's, it's who do you want to use as your cudgel yep. uh, to uh, deliver a blow to Lori Lightfoot. That's why she, she's, as I said, as I've been saying for most of this campaign, those numbers, her numbers, which haven't really moved, 
2962, 2963, upside down in terms of fave unfave. I mean, she's just that's just really, really tough for an incumbent to overcome when things are not going well. It's like, yeah, I personally don't like your style. I personally may not like you, but if things are going well, I could tolerate you. But combine her personality and the way she's approached things with what's happening in the city, and she's done. She's not getting out of the runoff. She's not getting into the runoff. She's not getting out of tomorrow. She's done effectively after tomorrow. Oh, she that's doesn't think that, That's my handicapping though. of it. That's not, oh, no, no. She's well, in yeah, it. Yeah, she's I, going all well, the way. And look, what the message I've been bringing is, I'm the only candidate that can beat Paul Vallis oh. and stop him in his tracks. I mean, all of it's just pro, pro forma stuff um, from her. I've got a track record, and uh, it, it, despite the headwinds, headwinds that I'm largely responsible for generating, but yeah, it's just the same. It's death throes. She brought this it's upon death herself. For Lori. I mean, she did think about. It. Remember the time when she said, "I'm not going to talk to any white reporters." I mean, there's just a long laundry list of things she did where she was such a bully and t- such a tough guy, and that's not going to work because once she loses tomorrow. Nobody's going to even want her endorsement. Uh, let me put it another way. If uh, Lori Lightfoot had the personality of even a vanilla personality like Chewy Garcia, for example, or yeah. Paul Vallis, mm-hmm. she would win re-election. For anybody who wants to read into her um, demise, political demise tomorrow as like, oh, this was a city rejecting the COVID response and this was uh, the – uh, what she did or didn't do at CPS or what she did or didn't do on this issue and her antagonistic relationship toward police. Nah, no, it's her personality. It's the way she chose to publicly address the city, uh, to the way she chose to publicly engage critics or criticism. It's the moments like you just described. That's one. It's the uh, dismissive attitude towards the Bears. It's the dismissive attitude towards McDonald's CEO. It's the dismissive attitude towards Ken Griffin leaving. It's just her general dismissive, haughty attitude against anyone who is not her cheerleader. And, um, you know, when, as I said, when things are going wrong and people are feeling uncertain or even more to the point, afraid to live in the city, then that just doesn't wear well, and she has not worn well. So she, she and her Joe Pesci suit collection are going away tomorrow. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I'll tell you, I was at O'Hare Airport yesterday, and I specifically went to the baggage claim area where, you know, you've been seeing all the homeless people. They're not there anymore. Guess where they are? Now they're upstairs at ticketing. Midway? No, no, oh. now they're upstairs at ticketing. <laughs> the oh, they're ticketing. ticketing. Well, yeah, all right. It was great. So I took some pictures. I'm going to tweet them out. But and I talked to one of the employees there. and They said, yeah, you know, after that Tucker Carlson report, they came in. And I said, well, you, you know, there's an election on Tuesday, too. And he's like, well, yeah, that, too. But they came in and took um took a bunch of people. I don't know where they went. But he said there is about there's hundreds of them total. Vince in St. Charles. I talked to uh, I did a mini survey. Uh, three of my friends. One uh, conservative, he says there's nobody to vote for, so he's not voting. He's just not voting at all. He's uh, standing it out. And then one of my friends, he says anybody but Lightfoot and a business owner on Harlan Avenue said the same thing. Anybody but Lightfoot. We need to get her out of there. Business owner on Harlan Avenue. That's what he says. So and they have, no they have to vote for somebody. All. Who are they going to vote for? Well, we were talking, and I was going to say Bellis. To my conservative friend, and I didn't because he's not a conservative. He's 
so I couldn't do it, and he's not going to vote. And one, Willie Wilson possibly, or Vallis, and the other one, he's not sure. Business owner. So. Thanks for the call, Vince. There you go. There's your undecideds. We'll talk to Willie and Jamal Green later in the show. Let them make their closing arguments. We'll press them both on some of these issues. So, uh, something else, though, too. I mean, if we could pick our heads up and look outside the city of Chicago, which is always helpful to do and which we don't seem to do, particularly our the political leadership we elect. Um, this is a very interesting piece in the New York Times by Michael Moritz who is a billionaire, uh, San Francisco Denison, Sequoia Capital. Hey, nice investment in uh, FTX there, buddy. Uh, even Democrats like me are fed up with San Francisco. Oh. Hmm. Like it or not, Moritz writes, San Francisco has be- – see if this rings a bell. See if this okay. reminds you of any place. Uh, like it or not, San Francisco has become a prize example of how we Democrats have become our own worst enemy. Causes that we have long espoused, respect for human rights, plenty of housing that's within reach for most people, care for the mentally ill, fair pay, high-quality public education, a dignified retirement, have all been crippled by a small coterie who knows how to bend government to its will. This astonishing city that I have been lucky enough to call home for more than 40 years has become subject to the tyranny of the minority. Hmm. And uh, Mr. Moritz has been puzzled by this development over the last several years. He's tried to figure it out. He thinks he's got it. He doesn't, but he thinks he does. He talks about uh, tinkering with the city charter, you know, manipulating the rules of the game to the benefit of the small group of insiders. Well, that's certainly part of it. And the the, the initiative, the ballot initiative, that's uh, one of the hallmarks of California that uh, provides for direct democracy, if you will, combined with uh, uh, removing some powers from the mayor, including her ability, in this case, San Francisco, London Breed, her ability to appoint a police chief. And so this creates uh, strain in terms of the relationship between the city and the and the police and the lack of, you know, central control over uh, agencies like the police department. And then he says this. The state of San Francisco has much to do with the way machine politics, with its many defects, has given way to a splintering of power in City Hall. This makes it much harder for there to be old-style fights between a well-defined machine and an equally animated reform movement. The hollowing out of our city's newspapers also contributes to poor governance. And San Francisco, like a growing number of blue cities, suffers a dearth of minority middle-class voters who could offer steadying influences. And he goes on, he founded some group that he's funding to be that reform movement, reform left against the institutional left, and he's optimistic and so on and so forth. But I just thought, so at least there's there's just somebody who is starting to see things partially for how they are. He's starting to partially see the problems that we're bubbling below the surface for a long time and then came to the surface more recently, certainly within the last three years of lockdowns and lawlessness. And so is he going to get the remedy correct? No, he's not. Not yet. Not based on what he wrote. But at least he's starting to confront some of the problems and on whose watch they've occurred. That's more than I can say about Chicago. 
who is going to use Lori Lightfoot as a scapegoat and then say, oh, we made a change. But did you? We'll see. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Dilbert cartoon creator Scott Adams uh, killed uh, Dilbert over the weekend. R.I.P. Based on... uh, uh, little uh, diatribe he went on that was performative in nature but of course the point was missed by those who miss all the points and often purposely so for the express purpose of their own moral indignation and so they can express to the world what a good person they are by sidelining somebody that says something that they find offensive and other people find offensive and the mob creates you you understand how these tempests uh, build so um, this is sort of good timing because we have this mayoral election tomorrow that we were discussing and in the city of Chicago don't kid yourself everything is racial politics it's interesting to note if Paul Vallis running about you know 31, 32 percent in some of the recent polling. Yeah, the city's about a third white. And then you add up the uh, votes for black candidates and, you know, you're in the mid-40s. Yeah, well. Split that eight ways. No, seven ways. Sorry. Yeah, but, 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 but actually probably high 40s. And that's about the distribution of the actual electorate. If you look at the composition of the electorate, a majority of the votes cast in 19 were black residents of the city of Chicago. And then you've got, uh, you know, 15, 20% Latino. And uh, Chewy Garcia is running right about there. The racial politics in Chicago that we don't like to talk about. We like to see it. We don't, I don't know if we'd like to. I don't, but it is played out. Everybody speaks in racial terms and that's accepted. And then we say, oh, the racial politics of the city. Oh, the de facto segregation of the city. Oh, it's such a terrible thing. Meanwhile, we pump up de facto segregation by the way the Chicago Press Corps covers politics and everything by the identitarianism that we have allowed to take hold in the city. And, of course, the irony is lost on, I don't know, three quarters of the electorate. That's just a guess. Nothing scientific. So uh, that against uh, 
that as backdrop against what Scott Adams had to say. Here's the rant he went on that uh, spurred outrage online that led to his syndicator uh, spiking him. And, uh, you know, immediately all these big news outlets that carry the Dilbert cartoons, all they purged him from the funny pages immediately with uh, denounced public denouncements saying they were doing so because the editors at these big media outlets are no different than your run-of-the-mill goof on Twitter when it comes to virtue signaling and the hi-hat and racial politics. All right, here's Scott Adams. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where... You know, I have a very low black population because, unfortunately, the, you know, there's a high correlation between the density. And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when, when he notes that the, when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm, I'm going uh, to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. Like I've been doing it all my life and I've been... The only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. That's the only outcome. <laughs> it makes no sense to help black Americans if you're white. Uh, the, the, it's over. Don't, don't even think it's worth trying. Totally not trying. And there we go. You didn't expect that today, did you? <laughs> no, I did not. But those who don't want to focus on education, you just need to get away from them. Just get as much distance as you can. That's my... 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. One uh, parenthetical remark. The poll he referred to at the outset is a Rasmussen poll that asked the question whether or not uh, respondents agree to the statement, it's okay to be white, and only a slight majority of black Americans agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. So that was the basis of uh, his jumping off point there where he went on the uh, – Yeah, and a combination – took, took, took that angle. A combination of, you know, 47% were, were undecided and the other side was, no, it's not okay to be white. Right. So that came up with a 50, 47%. And then the firestorm oh, ensued. Oh, boy. 
and he got all the Dilbert cartoons, and he anticipated it. His, his tweeting suggests so. Yeah, he tweeted, a lot of people are angry at me today, but I haven't heard anyone disagree. Uh, I made two main points. One, treat everyone as an individual, no discrimination. And number two, avoid any group that doesn't respect you. Does anyone think that that is bad advice? Uh, He went on. There's a little bit more to what he had to say. And then see if your spidey sense is tingling as to what you think Scott Adams is doing here. And again, Scott Adams, somebody we've had on the show many times. And uh, we'll effort to get him back to uh, talk about this controversy he's generated. But here's the rest of what he had to say in pertinent part. Um, And I'm also really sick of seeing video after video of black Americans beating up non-black citizens. Um, You know, I realize it's anecdotal and, you know, it doesn't give me a, a full picture of what's happening. But every damn day I look on social media and there's some black person beating the shit out of some white person. I'm kind of over it. I'm over it. Right. So I, I quit. I thought he was being sarcastic there. Or was he not, Dan? I don't. Well, um, Scott Adams, for those who are looking for a reveal or waiting for the reveal, Scott Adams went on uh, this podcast um, called Hotep Jesus. That's the host's handle. And uh, talked about this. And uh, here's what he said about what he said. I wouldn't do it just for laughs. I mean, it isn't that funny. It's pretty funny, but it isn't that funny. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it for money. I wouldn't do it for reputation. Why would I do it? Well, I mean, that's a question. Why would I do it? I think you want to have the conversation. Can you think of any other reason I would do it? I think you wanted to what? have, I think you wanted to create room for the conversation. <laughs> um, I discovered that the price of free speech is really high. And there are only a few people willing to pay it. So I decided to pay it so that I could extend the conversation to something that everybody needs to hear. Well, again, um, he he asked questions on Twitter in response to the controversy, such as, is it racist to avoid racists who are the same race as each other? Or is it only racist if the racists you're avoiding are white? Now, I, I'm not uh, in agreement with the approach that he took here. And there's a, this is an approach. I mean, the the simpleton has the knee-jerk reaction, runs to Twitter to denounce him, you know, screams uh, in through any communication channel that he or she can find because they don't have any appreciation for who Scott Adams is or the context of this or the point of it Um, because they're just trolling around looking for the next thing to be outraged over. They're trolling around to make sure everybody knows how much empathy they have for black people and how opposed they are to white supremacy and so on and so forth. And they're going to, uh, to, to, to pull it out, root and branch, wherever they see it, because they're America's guardians. No, they're America's simpletons. But I'll let Scott Adams give you the context of what you heard him say there. 
Um, if you are a, a white man in America and you're watching the news and you're seeing this thing called CRT, critical race theory, you're seeing DEI uh, and ESG, all three letter things that have in common, trying to reach some kind of equity, you know, racial balancing kind of situation. Now, I'll, I'll ask you this question because you maybe you can uh, educate me. My understanding is that they all have at the base of their narrative that white people, mostly white men, have uh, created a situation and continue to perpetuate one that's bad for black people. Is that a fair statement? Yes. So what would be the most natural way you would feel if the narrative from the media, from college, from high school, your teachers, your parents, if the media was very, um, let's say, cohesive and it said white people are the problem, do you think that would affect how people, how black people thought about white people? Yes. Would it have any effect? Yes. And, and assuming it's a negative effect, would that, would it be reasonable for somebody to say, wait, there's this group of people, I don't have any problem with any individual and I don't want to change the constitution, right? right? Everybody's got to be treated equally. But it's a little bit smarter for me to stay away from a group who has been brainwashed to dislike me exactly. Like me exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a rich white guy in America. I, I'm, I'm very much right in the center of those crosshairs. Now, does that mean that I think everybody should avoid their neighbor? No. Does that mean I'm never going to talk to a black person? No. Does that mean I won't hire black people? No. doesn't mean any of that. And also, I assume people know hyperbole when they see it, right? <laughs> you know, when I say stay away from black people, anybody who thought that was like a literal, like, yeah, yeah, all black people, if you see one coming, run, run. <laughs> like, the, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a test I like to give for fake news where, where you just say the thing that's in the news and then you follow it with the words, really? Really? Do you think that happened? Do you, do you think that I went on you know, a live stream and said, stay away from black people, every one of them. There's no exceptions. Whatever you do, just ask yourself, do, was there any thinking behind it? You know, was, was there maybe a, a why to that that you haven't heard yet? If you heard it in context, would you disagree with it? And the answer is... The answer is, uh, at least according to him, he hasn't got much disagreement when you hear it in context, and that's the... And what he just provided there was the additional context for what he was attempting to do. Right, now, but the mainstream media labeled it as a race rant. Yeah, of course they did. Of course they did. Because anything that is, uh, I mean, I, I guess except if Don Lemon says it a decade ago, anything that is not celebratory about everything black and everything every black person is racist. And frankly, uh, even when you are even when you're helping out, you're still called a racist. Um, and, but that's okay. And that's this is sort of where I disagree with Scott Adams' tact. Although it's interesting. I'll explain my disagreement in a second. But Jesse Lee Peterson, Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, who we got on the show, he's a conservative oh, yeah. black pastor. And by the way, Hotep Jesus, the podcaster that was interviewing Adams there in those clips that you heard, uh, if you don't know what Hotep means, he's a black uh, gentleman as well. Jesse Lee Peterson tweeted out, this is absolute truth what Scott Adams is saying here. He had to have known that all the coward newspapers would drop his Dilbert comic strip, 
comic strip. I admire Scott Adams for doing it anyway. Yeah, I mean, Adams is basically sad. He says, you know, his income is going to dry up, but he doesn't really need the money anymore. His reputation will be more in controversy than it was prior to that uh, provocative riff that he offered. But um, uh, if even if you don't agree with the rhetorical choice he you he made to prompt this larger consideration um there's probably some appreciation for trying to strip away the veneer of how race is discussed in america and do a little bit of a mirror test here with who we say we are and what we say we want versus how we approach people based on their race as if we should be approaching them based on the race at all, which is sort of the predicate question. Text message, Dan and Amy, I'd love to hear what Elder, Woodson, Carol, Swain, et cetera, weigh in, would weigh in on this, what they would yeah, think of it. I, so would I. I don't know where, like, Bob or uh, Carol Swain or, um, uh, you know, Glenn Lowry and some of these great conservative black thinkers would come down on this. I think, I, I mean, maybe they would come down in the same place I am, which is, I see what you're doing. I get it. Um, maybe not the most productive way to do it. The better thing when he said, you know, I'm I'm and you don't want to do the white man's burden thing either. So let me just process this and say it this way. Like when he said, you know, get away from them. Um, I've I've talked or I've I've tried to help all my life. And all I get is called a racist sort of like you're donning the victim cloak and I know what he's doing, like, you know, how do you like it when I characterize myself as a victim and I'm not? You know, maybe that was what he was trying to to elicit there. Um, but I think the, the better approach is to say, look, here's the deal. Um, you know, you you can call me whatever you want and you can delude yourself however you want. Um, my interest in, is in helping people because of my station in life and what I've been able to achieve. My interest is helping people regardless of what their of their race, and that of course necessarily includes um, Black Americans who face a myriad uh, face myriad struggles. Um, and I do this because of uh, who I am and what I'm trying to be, what I want to contribute, rather than who you are. That's the Bob Woodson approach, right? Bob Woodson is interested in helping lift people out of poverty, and he doesn't care, white, brown, black, he doesn't care. Um, and that's the approach of, and I think that's the, the right uh, small-c conservative approach. Um, and so this of, you know, get away from them, and this, I, don't, I don't know. I'm sort of of two minds on it because – these conversations, people do need to be hit. A lot of people need to be hit with a rhetorical two by four. Um, but um, by the same token, um, some additional juxtaposition would have been nice to avoid all of the noise that would come that probably will not subside. And people will just hear the first rush of noise and then they'll close their minds to what comes next the context you're getting on this show, which I I will tell you, <laughs> I am highly skeptical you will get very many other places. Um, the kind of conversation that Scott Adams wants to prompt, I think the approach and the ensuing tsunami of criticism and cancellations 
will be all the mind share that people will devote to this. And he'll be just jettisoned as, oh, some, yeah, that racist cartoonist kind of thing. So that's why I just don't think his approach was as productive as it could have been, even though I, I, I know and we know from talking to Scott Adams and then you hear what his actual views are. I mean, he's he's left of me. He's still favors affirmative action, for goodness sakes. But um, but again, I, I, I so I, I know who he, he is. We have a good sense of it. And he's not how he's being caricatured, but he his approach lent himself to being caricatured. Matt's outside. Yeah, Dan, you know, my only uh, point with that, you know, the way Scott Adams, you know, talked was a lot of times we look at people like Paul Vallis, people running for mayor, and we say how he's wishy-washy a lot of times. And, you know, I, I really do. I think people are fed up and they just want to, you know, shoot straight and, you know, you can't wait all your words. I mean, that's, you know, I feel yeah. like what we're seeing in the mayor's race. Yeah, yeah, good and, point. Thanks for the call, Matt. That's This is the... The desire for authenticity um, and street fighting, you know, rhetorically at least. Yeah, fair point. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I want to stick on uh, Scott Adams for a bit more here. We were discussing him at the end of last hour. This uh, uh, provocative racial-oriented riff that he went on over the weekend that led to the elimination of his Dilbert cartoon strip in the Western world immediately. As you said, Dilbert is dead. Yeah, he killed Dilbert. Um, Maybe that was part of the point, too. He doesn't want to admit. I don't know. But uh, we were talking about whether or not his approach, being a provocateur to get people to think differently about race in this country, was helpful. Uh you know, first you have to sort of get past the hurdle of understanding what he's doing as opposed to just giving the performative moral indignation in response to what he said. Like, you know, gosh, what is he what is he doing here? Right. Um, this this there, there's probably more to this than meets the ear. And of course, there was as we played from his conversation with podcaster Hotep Jesus. But let's just to reset, because a little comparison and contrast about the type of rhetoric 
we tolerate, in fact, in many quarters in these sentimentalist, quote unquote, elite circles, celebrate, promulgate, compare uh, what Adam said to what some of those sentimental barbarians say and see if it's starting to come into a little better focus what he was trying to do. Just to uh, restate, here's what Adam said that got him in so much trouble. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where... You know, I have a very low black population because, unfortunately, there, you know, there's a high correlation between the density. And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when, when he notes that the, when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. And he goes on from there. Um, And he's basing it off a Rasmussen poll that surveyed 1,000 people, blacks in America, 26% said they disagree with the statement, it's okay to be white, and another 21% said they were not sure, so 47%. Okay, so let's compare what Scott Adams said, being a provocateur, and we can go back to that additional context if anybody missed it or would like to hear it. But uh, clearly he was being a provocateur, and there's a lot of additional things he said, including in that interview with Hotep Jesus, that provides um, texture. But let's compare what he said, trying to provoke, as, say, Brittany Cooper says routinely, she is a regular feature on MSNBC. She's a tenured professor at Rutgers University, part of the Big Ten. Uh, women in gender studies, of course. Um, here's, for example, what she says about white people. She's a black woman. And, of course, this is representative of a lot of the stated positions of academicians and others in these quote-unquote elite institutions. I think that white people are committed to being villains in the aggregate, right? The real sort of issue here, and I, you know, I've heard people sort of say it, is one, I think that white people viscerally fear. It's not that white people don't know, right, what they have done. They know. They fear that there is no other way to be human but the way in which they are human, which is to... So, you know, like you talk to white people and whenever you you really want to have a reckoning about it, they say stuff like, you know, it's just human nature. If y'all had all of this power, you would have done the same thing, right? And it's like, no, that's what white humans did. White human beings thought there's a world here and we own it. Prior to them 
Black and brown people have been sailing across oceans, interacting with each other for centuries without total subjugation, domination, and colonialism. We have seen uh, what a what a show this iteration of treatment of, of other human beings means, and that my hope is that we would do it differently you know, in the moments when we have some power. We will not do it perfectly, but I do think that all of us can sort of agree that a politics that says like there are superior and inferior human beings just isn't the way to go. And that's the thing that white people don't trust us to do because they are so corrupt. You know, their thinking is so morally and spiritually bankrupt about power that they can't let, you know, they fear viscerally, existentially letting go of power because they cannot imagine that there's another way to be. It is either that you dominate or you are dominated. And isn't it sad that that, that is spiritually who they are and that they can't imagine a sort of more expansive notion of the world, central struggle? Three one two. Did that bother anybody? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey depro answer line. You can also reach us all morning long on our text line six four six three six. Type in DA then a quick comment. Remember back in November twenty twenty one, she said white people need to be taken out. I mean, I could play. We could go on forever. Clips of people like Brittany Cooper all morning. I mean, I could play for twenty four hours straight. And I'm I'm not just talking about professors or academics or K through 12 teachers or uh, corporate die officers or Hollywood celebrities or Wall Street bankers or playwrights. This is the culture that they have fomented. And now Scott Adams is essentially holding a mirror up to it, and they don't like it when you change out who plays which role. And he, let me g- yeah. give you another example. This, I mean, this is this is the agitprop that is created by these cultural Marxists. That's what they are. They're using race the way that Marx envisioned class. That's all this is. It's so simple. I don't know why people can't see through it and have a little bit more courage. And, I, and again, I'm not supportive of how Adams chose to uh, angle into this issue. I would have done it differently. Like, not that anybody listened to me, but he's got a platform, so they listen to him. I would have done it differently because I don't think this advances the flag he wanted to advance. But let's just have a little bit of a, a, a stop, look, and listen, a little compare, contrast what Adams said and the basis on which he was saying it as opposed to the basis on which people like Brittany Cooper are saying what they're saying, uh, the basis on which people over at this channel called the uh, c- called Cut are doing what they're doing when they post videos like this, asking the question of, you know, random selection, not random selection, but a, a cross-section of black people asking them the question, what are white people superior at? Oh, yeah, By the I way, don't ask questions that end in a preposition. Here's the, here's the little bit of that. Oh, no. What are white people superior at? <laughs> exactly what white people superior at. They're real good at violence. Violence. Genocide. It's like stealing people's lives just because they feel like it. If you are white and you know this is happening, 
and you say nothing, then you're a killer too. What exactly are white people superior at? Insecurity. Pretending. Fear. Being fearful of nothing. Being ignorant. Blame. Letting their egos control their every move. Superior at being dicks. So if and that's just uh, some of it again, <laughs> if you the rest of it, if you change the uh, white versus black and mm-hmm. somebody posted a video the other direction. Ooh, it would never be posted. It'd be taken down immediately. And that person would be, you know, uh, hung in effigy. Right. Well, Scott Dilbert, he knew this is coming. He said, by Monday, I should be mostly canceled. So most of my income will be gone by next week. My reputation for the rest of my life is destroyed. You can't come back from this. Yeah, but but he knew that going in. Right. He he said in that, uh, as we played in that uh, podcast interview with Hotep Jesus, that, um, you know, the price of free speech is high, and I I was willing to pay it. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. I want to get one more um offering in one more exhibit into evidence if i can before we take some calls and we will just something very local and ubiquitous this is uh a piece that uh ap english students at lamont high school are charged with reading and reacting to white privilege unpacking the invisible knapsack by Peggy McIntosh, who is one of these professional race hustlers that charges school districts to come in and push the same sort of agitprop you hear from Brittany Cooper or from the cut channel there that we played. Daily effects of white privilege. And we you've heard some of this before, but I'll repeat some of it because it's not sinking in. And here's the context to say, compare and contrast provocateur Scott Adams to actual dyed-in-the-wool race hustlers. Daily effects of white privilege. I've decided to try and work on myself at least by, uh, work on myself at least by identifying some of the daily effects of white privilege in my life. I have chosen those conditions that I think in my case attach somewhat more to skin color privilege than to class, religion, ethnic status, or geographic location. Though, of course, all these other factors are intricately intertwined. As far as I can tell, my African-American coworkers, friends, and acquaintances with whom I come into daily or frequent contact in this particular time, place, and time of work cannot count on most of these conditions. There are 20, no, there are 50 listened, uh, li- listed, excuse me, 50 conditions, 50 expressions of white privilege on a daily basis that uh, this is being... That AP English students, AP, this is AP English at Lamont High School. I can, if I wish, to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can be pretty sure my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. These are the privileges that white people have that black people don't have just for existing according to this curriculum. I can speak in public to a powerful male group without putting my race on trial. I can be casual about whether or not to listen to another person's voice in a group in which uh, he or she is the only member of his or her race. Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. And on and on and on. And then it goes to, I can fix it. The steps. One, admit it. The first step is admitting you have a race and, of course, associated privilege. Number two, listen. 
I found that really listening to people of color and believing their experience is eye-opening. Number three, educate yourself. Right. Read the Agitpra from Peggy McIntosh and Ibram Kendi. Broaden your experience. Caution. Don't broaden your experience before you do steps one through three. <laughs> before I mean before before you admit you have a race and 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 uh you know read about it and 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 listen to people of color don't don't go out and try anything too fat too much too fast don't interact with them AP English at Lamont High School that's not a problem Where's the hue and cry over this at AP at uh, Lamont High School? Have you heard it? No. One parent sent it sent the uh, assignment to me. <laughs> but Scott Adams is the bete noir of Western civilization today. Okay, sure. Corey and Woodlawn. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I think Scott is right. I don't like the fact that a lot of people aren't looking at the fact that to remove color on this and just listen to the words he said. We have in Woodlawn over 700 non-for-profits operating in a two-mile radius. Almost all of them are only talking about race. These people are being saying this 24 hours of the day. It's hard for them not to be colored by it. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Right. Right. I mean, that, that was the question that Adams put to Hotep Jesus. CRT, die, ESG, K through 12. If you're pounded over the head day after day in at least some of your classes or at least some of your uh, daily work routine that you're a oppressor and they are the oppressed, that you have these privileges and they have these burdens, that we can't get past this without doing all of these things or providing all of these things then is that going to have an impact on attitudes? Oh, do you think? Do you think? The constant pounding you get in uh, media and the arts, is that going to have an impact on public opinion, on attitudes? Oh, gee, do you think? Boy, if you don't, then there's a lot of corporations that spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year for no point because marketing doesn't matter. Of course it does. George in Aperville. Dan, not to worry. There is one bastion left for white people, and that is hockey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not so much. Hockey's trying to, uh, you know, the force. Old. Yeah, they're trying to, you know, force feed diversity, too. I don't care. I, You know, it's just, I, I just, I, I despise these conversations. I mean, in, in terms of this, this obsession with race. It means nothing to me. Yes, uh, people's heritage and the history, all that means something. But all of this um, identity first, as opposed to, you know, to borrow a phrase, America first. I mean, that's the choice. I mean, who, who are the forces for unity and who are the forces for splintering and confrontation and hostilities? Hostilities that are rooted in non-behavioral aspects of uh, people's existence. I, I, it, to me, it's just so simple. But, of course, you're up against a cottage industry that we've created. 
and have allowed to be created and then implemented everywhere. Candace Montpleasant. Hi, Dan. Hey, you think that's bad? Look at that executive order that um, Joe Biden signed like a couple of weeks ago for the DEI. I, I haven't listened to you guys for a while, so I don't know. I mean, that, I mean, he's going to hire, you know, uh, force diversification and segments of the company, of companies and small businesses and everything else. I mean, it, it seems like what's happening to us is what happened to South Africa. Okay. It's like a Bolsh- This is like Bolshevist. Uh, Marxism, Bolshevikism uh, on steroids. You know what I mean? So I don't blame people for being frustrated because you're constantly, it's like a CCP campaign. You're completely hit over the head with it 24-7. Thanks for the call, Candace. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you have uh, at the federal level, right, you have uh, equity Advisors right. or right. s- senior level people—it's the same thing as at the university. Yeah, they've done K through twelve. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what they do. I don't know what their job in cabinet positions. Are. Yes, cabinet in cabinet. Right, right. Yeah, yes. cabinet offices. Yeah. Uh, Tim Woodstock. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Um, you know, I can't think of the name, Dan, of the, I think it was a New York Times columnist a few couple years back that was outright telling his kids to stay away from white people because they were, they were in danger. And, and yet that wasn't considered a racist thought or a comment in any kind of way. And I, I think the, the question really becomes, is there something there to be, to be fearful of? And, and, you know, and I would say, um, does a, does a black child, it, would a black child be safe uh, playing in a white neighborhood? Well, I would say generally yes. And would a would a white child be safe playing in a black neighborhood? I'd have to say generally no, because I think there is something there to fear, and mm-hmm. and, and it's this disregard for reality that that's the problem. You know, I, I have to say it. I've been wanting to say this for some time that I'm I'm really kind of done with. I'm 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 really um, frustrated with black Chicagoans who voted well over ninety percent to put that awful human being back in in uh, Springfield in his chair in the uh, governor's mansion um, because he's promoting the sexualization of our kids and his uh, his organizations are all the way down to to kindergarten maybe even preschool and you know what that starts to affect my life that affects my grandkids and, and i'm tired of that you want to tell me that black lives matter well you know my grandkids lives matter and and the way you vote is impacting my life savings. So if you want some, you know, I want to see some real change, you know, but it's not, it doesn't appear that it's coming in Chicago. Thanks for the call, Tim. Well, um, you know, I mean, how powerful is the marketing? Where's the hue and cry about what's happened to kids in CPS, I say again? Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody even covered it. If it was like a mention here or there in the C block on the nightly news. Right. Unbelievable to me. And so if you constantly and you have all of these institutions all aligned firing in the same direction and telling you all the time they are on your side and this is the boogeyman you know like all the mayoral candidates did with Ron DeSantis this is the boogeyman they're boogeyman there are things that go bump in the night that are out to get you and here we are the Vanguard class, to protect you. Do you believe it? Even when there is a mountain of evidence that suggests just the opposite. 
to connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal reported per a Department of Energy missive that uh, officials there at the Department of Energy concluded that the COVID-19 virus originated at the Wuhan Virology Lab in China. <laughs> well, who's going to tell NBC5's Richard Engel that he was wrong? Yeah, remember, remember he came out and I was oh, so yeah. defending him. No, Dan, oh, yeah. he was in the lab, you know, yeah, and then he oh, went yeah. to the wet market and this guy died. Remember the original guy who died from COVID because he ate the bat and yeah, all a lie. You were um, right, Dan. I was wrong. Well, I mean, like this is I mean, this is being received in circles of people that are actually skeptical of what our alleged betters in government say and have been for some time, particularly as you reflect back on the last three years and you ask yourself the question, I'm sorry, do these people at CDC, NIH, uh, et cetera, all the alphabet soup agencies, do they get anything right about COVID? Anything. Because masks. New York Times came out and said masks don't work. Citing a study, but, you know, 7% efficiency even for N95 masks. Asymptomatic spread, the efficacy of vaccines. I mean, it's just on and on and on. So this is former CDC director Robert Redfield. This is two years ago, almost. Okay. June of 21. When, because we've been debating this origination issue and getting to the bottom of the origination issue, because, of course, there are all sorts of compelling reasons for America to get to the bottom of this origination issue, particularly if it was something that was cooked up and or covered up by the Chinese communist government. Yeah, I this mean, is Robert Redfield okay. talking about Tony Fauci's lack of intellectual curiosity after Redfield was safely out of CDC. There's an alternative hypothesis that it went from a, a bat virus, got into a laboratory where in the laboratory it was... Uh, taught, educated, it evolved so that it became a virus that could efficiently transmit human to human. My professional opinion as a virologist is that's where that's the hypothesis that I support. You know, other individuals, Tony Fauci, for example, would say that he prefers to support that evolved from nature. I think those are the two hypotheses. I think Tony is holding on to this hypothesis tightly. Now, why, why would that be? Sometimes scientists, when they get on, they bite into a bone on a hypothesis, it's hard for them to move on. I guess if I'm disappointed about anything about the early scientific community is that there seemed to be lack of openness to pursue both hypotheses. Yeah, well, but, un- unfortunately, Redfield was part of that lack of openness, uh, it, but he, at least he came to being a little bit more open once he was out of CDC. And the idea of Tony Fauci being a little shih tzu with a uh, bone in his mouth, that does actually ring true to me on a range of issues. Well, here's what NSA, uh, National Security Advisor for the big guy, Jake Sullivan, uh, Jake from the State Department as opposed to Jake from State Farm, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Here's what he said 
uh, about um, the uh, DOE report. You won't be surprised. There's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. Without having had a single conversation since the war began between President Xi and President Zelensky. Uh, Apparently, we we don't have that. I I don't know why. Um, Jake Sullivan essentially said, can I neither confirm nor deny? Oh, of course. Of course. But I mean, the thing is, was the lab leak an accident or purposeful? Well, that's a secondary question. Um, And the whole, like, you know, some intelligence uh, folks believe this and other... Mm -hmm. Experts believe that, you know, virologists like Robert Redfield. Uh, Well, uh, for more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Gordon Chang, an expert on uh, Chinese communist policies and how that government operates. He is uh, author of The Coming Collapse of China, as well as The Great U.S.-China Tech War. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. Gordon Chang, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Stan and Amy. So um, your reaction to not only the DOE revelation, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, but also the Jake Sullivan comment, and here it is. We've got it. Well, Dana, there is a variety of views in the intelligence community. Some elements of the intelligence community have reached conclusions on one side, some on the other. A number of them have said they just don't have enough information to be sure. Here's what I can tell you. President Biden has directed repeatedly uh, every element of our intelligence community to put effort and resources behind getting to the bottom of this question. And one of the things in that Wall Street Journal report, uh, which I can't confirm or deny, but I will say the reference to the Department of Energy, President Biden specifically requested that the national labs, which are part of the Department of Energy, be brought into this assessment because he wants to put every tool at use uh, to be able to figure out what happened here. And if we gain any further insider information, we will share it with Congress and we will share it with the American people. But right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. It's interesting. So uh, Jake from the State Department, uh, he uh, tasked the Department of Energy and the Department of Energy fulfilled the task and they concluded that it came from the lab, but we still don't know. Right, because two okay. members of the department, two of the group that they assembled, are it, say it's inconclusive. All right, so what say you, Gordon Chang, to that response? Well, first of all, um, Jake Sullivan is, in a sense, correct, because there are 18 intelligence agencies, and not all of them are coming up with intelligent answers. Clearly, there's a lot more to learn. And when Jake Sullivan says, oh, look, um, if we need to, <laughs> we're, we're trying to pursue every avenue, The point is that President Biden has had five phone or video calls with Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, and one in-person meeting, which was last November at the G20 in Bali. And not once has our president raised the issue of the origins of COVID-19. This is something that has killed more than 1.1 million Americans, according to Johns Hopkins. You think he might be a little bit curious about this, but no. the, the Department of Energy report is obviously right, that there was a leak from the lab. The, I think the Department of Energy should have gone one step further and said, this looks also to be an engineered pathogen, not just a leak of a stored pathogen. Um, and we need to know this because China is working on a lot of other pathogens. They call specific ethnic genetic attacks. 
These are pathogens that will leave the Chinese immune and kill everybody else. And we need to deter Xi Jinping from spreading the next disease because that could be the civilization killer. So that Wuhan lab is still open and operating? Yes, it is still open and operating, and it's only one of a number of uh, labs across China um, which engage in, in military work. And the reason why, uh, you know, you, you played the clip from uh, Redfield. On January 3, 2020, his opposite number, the head of the CDC in China, actually told Redfield that uh, COVID-19 was not transmissible human to human. So the Chinese not only developed this, but they also lied about it. Um, you know, we can argue about whether this was engineered or not, because that has not been fully determined. But the point is, the Chinese turned SARS-CoV-2, this pathogen, into a biological weapon by lying about transmissibility when they knew it was highly contagious. And then while they were locking down their own country, they were pressuring other countries, including the United States, to take arrivals from China without restriction. You put those two things together, Dan and Amy, and it shows that those 1.1 million Americans who have died from COVID-19, according to Johns Hopkins, they were murdered. Well, so this is right, because uh, because it, they covered up that uh, the, the, this leak occurred at, at minimum and at maximum. It's something worse than that. There was some purpose behind this. Now, that seems like, uh, well, wait a second. They locked down their own country. Why would they wouldn't inflict this on their own country? Well, I mean, President Xi and the Chinese communists aren't afraid to break a few eggs, as we've seen. So what's your working theory about, okay, it came from the lab and and it escaped and they covered up and lied or something else? Oh, I think that it escaped. I mean, if you talk to people in China, they will say that uh, Beijing deliberately wanted to kill off old Chinese, and so therefore it was a deliberate uh, spread of the disease uh, from the lab. I don't think so. I think it was a leak. But we know that once it was leaked, it was a deliberate spread beyond China's borders. Um, there's really no other conclusion when you look at the facts, because there was a deliberate campaign to lie about the transmissibility of the disease. The only reason why you would lie about this is that so other countries, people like Redfield, would not recommend precautions that you would normally take in a viral outbreak like this. So, you know, China has this doctrine of comprehensive national power which is ranking countries' strength. And, and China wants to be number one. And I, I don't blame China for wanting to be number one, but we can blame them for the way they did it. They try to be number one by weakening everybody else because that increases your comprehensive national power ranking. That's what they did. This was murder. We need to hold them to account because if we don't hold them to account, Dan and Amy, they will spread the next disease. But why did they want to spread it around the world? Did they want every country to have the same pain that they were under, experiencing the same pain? Absolutely. Um, and that's because of, you know, they, they, they look at their own country. They knew that they were going to undergo terrible pain because of this disease. And so they thought, well, yeah, we're going to lose our CNP ranking. And so, therefore, they said, well, let's go after everybody else. We're going to spread this. And, unfortunately, we have don't have global leaders who are hoping or who are imposing costs on China for doing that. Because well, well but, but, but I mean, all the uh, all governments and particularly communist governments operate under 
this promotion that they are infallible. I mean, they're never going, I mean, you know, the Soviets in Chernobyl, they're never going to admit that this was a government failure because that questions their legitimacy. I mean, we, and, and again, frankly, in the West, you not maybe on this scale, but you see the same thing. Mistakes are always made. Nobody makes them when it comes to the government. Well, in a democracy, um, people hold the president of the United States. They hold their senator, their congressman to account. Sometimes. Uh, you can't do that in China because right. of the nature of the political system. Right. But I mean, but but if this cloak of infallibility is pulled away, then they they that that destabilizes their stranglehold on the country, don't you think? Absolutely. And and in a communist state, there's an added problem. And that is that communism um, talks about the forces of history and that the Communist Party is a representative of history and history can't be wrong. So um, that's why you don't have apologies from communist governments in general. And China's even worse because you add in um, some cultural aspects to it. But really what you've got right now is a communist China that has realized it's gotten away with killing about uh, 6.8 million people around the world outside of China. And it's saying to itself, well, look, uh, Western leaders are weak. We can do what we want. And it's no coincidence that you have um, these bad actors like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea are now forming um, a new camp. This is a new Cold War, and they think that they can do what they want, um, as we can see from the invasion of Ukraine. Is um, So is that uh, is the, the President Xi's spy balloon program, is that testing the West? Is that what that was about? Um, yes, it was. Um, we don't know um, why China was so brazen to do that. And there's alternate theories that one of them is the military was so powerful that it could do what it wanted without telling Xi Jinping. Um, I think a more likely explanation is that Xi Jinping just wanted to humiliate the United States. His um, diplomacy is to tell countries the United States is in terminal decline, ditch them, obey China, and flying a large object over the United States um, is a perfect way of showing the world that the United States is incapable. And by the way, the Pentagon was pretty incapable. Um, yeah. It tracked this launch from launch on Hainan Island. It allowed this to enter the 48 states without telling the commander-in-chief. Somebody in the Pentagon needs to lose their job. And I'm not talking about some lower-level guy. I'm talking about um, perhaps the Secretary of Defense or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Not telling the commander-in-chief of this balloon after it entered U.S. airspace for four days, someone's got to go. I, I vote for both, Austin and Millie. Um, I want to get your take on something else, too, this, uh, this uh, uh, intelligence that uh, is being bandied about by the administration that uh, China is contemplating arming Russia in their effort to conquer Ukraine. Jake Sullivan was asked about that on Meet the Press yesterday. You know, why don't we make it public what we would intend to do if what the consequences would be if if uh, uh, China was to do something like that? Here's what he said. Well, we believe that this is better done directly with Chinese counterparts in private. And in fact, Secretary Blinken had the opportunity to meet with China's top diplomat at the Munich Security Conference just a few days ago. So we have channels to be able to make sure that China fully understands the U.S. position and what would happen were they to move forward with this step. And we don't see as much profit in microphone diplomacy on this. Is Jake Sullivan right about that, Gordon? 
Absolutely not. We've had private diplomacy with China for now three decades after the Cold War, producing horrible results. What Jake Sullivan said sounded good to the ear, but in fact has not worked. And in, by the way, um, China has already been supplying lethal assistance to Russia. They did it from the beginning of the war, um, and the administration doesn't want to acknowledge it. I think they don't want to acknowledge it because they don't want to impose costs. Um, I, I don't know what's going through their minds, but I think that the American people should say, look, there are all of these reports of lethal assistance. Just tell us that these are false or start imposing costs on China. And the American public um, needs deserves answers on this. I mean, the Breaking Defense website says that almost every day an Antonov AN-124, which is the largest cargo plane in the world, leaves China's Zhengzhou, which is in the central part of China, with ammunition and other high consumption rate items. And clearly, they, you know, ammunition looks like lethal assistance to me. So why don't we hear answers from Jake Sullivan, Jake from the White House? Um, why doesn't he say, well, look, these reports are wrong? Or the American people need to confront him and say, start imposing those costs. He is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and The Great U.S.-China Tech War. Follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Gordon G. Chang is his handle on Twitter. Gordon Chang, thanks as always for your insights. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Dan and Amy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Loved having you on the program. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just on this uh, DOE report, we were talking to Gordon Chang about that uh, DOE officials believe the COVID virus originated in the Wuhan Virology Lab and leaked out of that lab. Chinese yeah. communists covered it up. John Stewart. It wasn't just uh, Robert Redfield, the former CDC director, back in June of 2021, almost two years ago. John Stewart appearing on the Colbert Show. There was a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there was evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease <laughs> is the same name as the lab. <laughs> that's, just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they ask those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> and you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your lab, if you look at the name, look at the name. Can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, okay, okay. Wait a second. Wait a second. What about this? What about this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
there's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. Uh, yeah. Maybe uh, uh, Department of Energy should bring John Stewart in-house. We could have figured this out a couple of years ago. Uh, it's just a moment of levity when we needed it. For more on this and other topics, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Jim, uh, were you uh, shocked by the uh, Wall Street Journal report on the Department of Energy's conclusion the virus originated in Wuhan? Um, no, you know, when this first broke out, I mean, you know, first of all, that was hilarious. I guess. And people say, well, it was in a lab. And I said, well, look, I mean, we pay attention to this part of China because this is the part of China where these kinds of diseases come out of. And indeed, we set up a whole World Health Organization reporting system just to deal with this kind of issue. And this, everything completely broke down. So, I, you know, I have to admit, I, I was not dismissive of a natural-born disease outbreak and because it was consistent with, with the facts we had. Having, having said that, I said, look, you know, we don't know where this comes from, but we do know. And, and this, to me, even if people don't want to believe this, that it was leaked from a lab, um, here's the, the one thing that is completely 1,000% factually true is there was a global pandemic because of the malfeasance of the Chinese government. They knew this disease was communicable. They let people go all over the world, particularly uh, vacationers who went, or uh, people came back for the holiday and then went back to Italy. Um, they withheld critical information that we created measures ju- just for reporting because they screwed up so bad the last time. So, and if you if you run the timeline, and we had had a three or four month head start on dealing with this disease, it would have been it would have been much more easily to contain this thing. So, regardless of whether you believe this is true or not, China is absolutely completely at fault. I think the one thing we've learned here is really how despicable our own government was in not aggressively pursuing this. And against the wishes of the president of the United States, who at the time said, you know, I want to know about the Chinese virus. And instead, his own government was kind of. How dare you call it the Chinese virus? Yeah. How dare you call it the Chinese virus? But but here's the thing. So the only government that is less interested in holding China accountable than China is the United States government, it seems to me, because well, if the if we announce that, yes, this is uh, we've concluded that this is indeed the truth, then it will require some sort of account, uh, you know, accountability mechanism, some sort of reckoning with the Chinese communists. And it doesn't seem like the Biden administration well, has any interest in going down that path. Well, this, this is the real news story. This is the real, the real, real story. As, as your government comes out and said, the Chinese not only withheld critical information and respond well they may have you know accidentally leaked it from the bottom and hid the fact from the world this administration has just concluded nego- negotiations on a global pandemic treaty which addresses none of the faults of who none of the faults of china um, gives more power to the who violates your civil liberties uh and and china had the audacity the audacity in the treaty to insist that they be treated like a developing nation, which under the treaty requires that we hand over intellectual property. 
and all kinds of response money to developing nations. So China wants to be, actually be, if there's another pandemic, to be rewarded. And this treaty was negotiated by, with the, the United States at the table. Matter of fact, the United States putting these things in the treaty. So they're not responding to the fact that China is responsible. They're not talking about reparations or holding accountable or anything else. They're talking about how to protect China so the next time it happens, China can't ever be held responsible again. And empowering the people who actually made the pandemic worse. And the treaty even says they get to decide what disinformation is, right? So the people that leaked the, the, the stuff and, and hid the truth, the people that told us things over and over that absolutely knew were not true, they're in charge of disinformation. This is unbelievable. This may be the most egregious thing this administration has ever done. Zero, zero draft treaty. And it's completely, completely beyond the pale. And it was negotiated by your president knowing all and, the things that went wrong the last few years. And and you you mentioned that this infringement on our civil liberties. What power does it give the WHO? Are we ceding our sovereignty in terms of pandemic response to the WHO? So one of the things, yes. And one of the things this 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 treaty actually says is, oh, um, you don't really have to treat this like a treaty. And so the U.S. government actually had them write into the treaty that you don't have to treat it like a treaty, so they can just sign it and not go to Congress and get it ratified. So they've actually, they actually actively work to circumvent the U.S. Constitution. Um, I want to go back. Is there going to be any repercussions against China for accidentally or maybe pers- per- purposefully leaking the COVID from the lab? I mean, are we going to stop funding it at the very least? Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're how many years in? And two full years into the Biden administration. Uh have they shown any? I mean, I, I think the drafting of this treaty is a, a pretty darn good sign that they have no plans about going back and and being tough with China. This is actually their mo on everything. They don't, they don't want to be tough with China. They want to seem they want to seem like they're tough on China because because they know people want to be tough on China, so they want the street cred for that. Absolutely no stomach to actually take on the Chinese at all. And this treaty is absolute proof. I wrote about it on my Substack, but a lot of people. The sad. This is the thing that really ought to scare the bejesus out of you. If you actually just go Google this treaty, mm-hmm. you'll see all these articles glowingly talking about how wonderful the treaty is. Or you'll see articles saying, "Well, it's really it's not tough enough. It doesn't go far enough." This is nonsense. They want all in the event of a pandemic. Companies have turned over all their intellectual property to the World Health Organization. I guess there's not much to do with it. Uh, staying on China, but folding in Russia and Ukraine, uh, your reaction to China's proposed, quote-unquote, peace plan to bring the war in Ukraine to an end? Okay, the China peace plan is a peace plan, like a Chinese menu, is Chinese food. <laughs> okay. All right. Did right. I say more? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally is a nothing burger. and. And for them to actually throw this out there where they're actively considering coordinating with the Russians to provide their military support just goes to show how unbelievably factual they are. But, you know, I, this is, I think this is behind all this China stuff. Um, you know, China is very adept and, and, and innovative and flexible. All this wacko stuff they're doing now, it's not for you. It's not for me. It's not even for Ukraine's or the Europeans. They perceive that what they call, quote-unquote, the global south, Africa, parts of Latin America, 
these people aren't getting upset about China. And so they're giving every reason to kind of like the Chinese. So people in Africa, South Africa, oh, the Chinese have a peace plan, right? So it's propaganda for, for and they, so they go where, they, you know, they flow where it's easy. They're getting pushed back in Europe, they're getting pushed back in, in the United States, but less so in Latin America and Africa where they write checks and, and you know, greedy people are just happy to cash them. That That's, that's where this propaganda is really into it. Uh, Jake from the State Department was on Meet the Press yesterday. He was asked about uh, what victory looks like in Ukraine for the Ukrainians. And, of course, uh, it's not up to us to define it. That's up to Zelensky to define it. And then he was pressed by that yapping little terrier, Chuck Todd, uh, on that very issue. Okay, well, if it's up to uh, Zelensky to define it, then he has defined it. And that includes taking back Crimea, so why don't we adopt the same position that Jake Sullivan has? Take a listen. Well, President Zelensky said it. Victory is all of the territory back. Why don't we say the same thing now? Well, we have repeatedly talked about Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity with it in its internationally recognized borders. The question for us is, how do we put Ukraine in the best position on the battlefield so that they are ultimately in the best position at the negotiating table? And President Zelensky, as recently as this week, has said we are going to have to ultimately get to a diplomatic phase of this conflict. So from our perspective, our goal is to strengthen the hand of the Ukrainians on the battlefield so that they are in the strongest position with the most leverage when they get to the negotiating table to ultimately achieve an outcome uh, that restores Ukraine's full sovereignty and territorial integrity. If they want to take Crimea militarily, will the United States help Ukraine do that? Chuck, the critical thing right now is that they need to take back the territory in the south and the east that they are currently focused on, and we need to give them the tools to be able to do that. The question of Crimea and the question of what happens down the road is something that we will come to where we are right now. So why don't we um, just uh, fold in with Zelensky and his stated desire to take back Crimea? That's uh, integral to anything that resembles victory since we're uh, you know, following his lead, why not follow his lead into Crimea? Aren't you glad that, like, Jake Sullivan's not your doctor? Yes. Like, doctor, am I going to live? <laughs> well, well, we don't. Um, here, you know, this, this is the sad thing about about these yahoos is they actually have an opportunity when they go before the American people to explain to the American people what we're doing and why we're doing it, and and they talk like they're in a meeting over at the State Department with a with a you know with a bunch of other diplomats what's in it for us i mean the, the problem with that whole conversation it, it it never for one second said what is the american interest here we're trying to protect mm-hmm. how are we going to protect that and how does it support that um we, i've said this many many times look we're, we love ukrainians They're marvelous people i've been to ukraine many times i i wish them all the best in the world we're not in ukraine for ukrainians we're in Ukraine because Putin's ambitions were far greater than Ukraine, uh, and they serve the Chinese ambitions as well. And that and that stopping Putin in Ukraine is, is the best for everybody. By the way, including for the Ukraine. And the, the reality is, every day Putin fights, his military gets weaker. He has less capacity to threaten other people. Uh, and um, and we should be talking about those things, not about you know 
whether they get Crimea back or not, which is, you know, we always ask the questions we want to know the answers to, as opposed to the questions we can answer. Uh, you know, there's a whole thing that heavy gets a vote. Vladimir Putin has just as much on how the census as, as, uh, as the Ukrainians do. We don't know what's in his mind and when he's going to stop fighting and what that, what that looks like. But, but the, the question is, what does victory look like for Ukraine? Quite honestly, I don't care. What I care about is, what is in the best interest of the American United States? And what are you, Jake Sullivan, going to do to make sure that happens? And, we, and in that whole conversation that went on and on and on, he never spent five seconds addressing that. Right. What's in it for Americans? Yeah. Are we going to protect your interests? We never heard those words. Well, that's because they're citizens of the world in the Biden administration, of course. You know, they're, they're, they transcend our corporate boundaries. Something else, though, on Ukraine. Charlie Gasparino had an interesting piece in the New York Post about uh, the big bankers meeting with Zelensky, uh, talking about Larry Fink at uh, BlackRock, talking about Jamie Dimon at Morgan Stanley, talk, um, with the idea of raising private funds to rebuild that country. And we're, you know, we're talking in the tens of billions. Uh, so Wall Street sees uh, economic opportunity in Ukraine once the hostilities subside, uh, potentially, and Zelensky does more to root out corruption. That's specifically Wall Street bankers saying it, according to Gasparino, on the corruption piece, not House Republicans. And uh, something else, though, that Gasparino observed sort of from uh, the conversations with these uh, titans of uh, Wall Street, which is um, uh Zelensky believes that he basically has a blank check from America in perpetuity, that the money will uh, that is flowing will never stop flowing. Um, what, what, how should we read Wall Street's interest in Ukraine right. and Zelensky's attitude toward uh, the, this country based on what he's getting from the Biden administration? Yeah, well, well first of all, I don't think it's true. You know, I, I met with Zelensky and many senior Ukrainian officials and they don't think they have a blank check. They don't think they want a blank check. So I'm not, that's not a, that's not coming from the Ukrainian government. That's coming from our government. Our government's the idiots who are saying, well, whatever it takes, you know, whatever we can spend, you know, whatever. It's like, it's like America's this giant ATM where we have to do all the deposits and they get to do all the withdrawals. Uh, I will say I would much rather Ukraine be rebuilt with private sector money than with taxpayer money. Taxpayer money is, and development has proven incredibly ineffective and stupid. Um, why would the private sector do that? Well, look, U- Ukraine could actually be a very successful, productive country. First of all, it is the agricultural breadbasket of the entire world. Uh, it's in a great position logistically. It can, it can integrate it with the West. Um, it has actually a very, very good workforce. As a matter of fact, Ukrainians having to flee Ukraine has actually been a boon to the rest of Europe because it's really helped add it to their workforce. So, there's no reason why private sector money couldn't build, rebuild I, Ukraine. I, 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 agree that. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that, Jim. But but you you know what the China. yeah, but you know what the issue is. That's not the issue. The issue is is Wall Street driving our policy. That becomes the issue. Well, the, well, I, I don't think Wall Street should drive policy, and, and I think that Ukraine should be built by the private sector on commercial terms that are open and transparent and respectful of rules of the West, and not by China. Not by governments who who will give a blank check, and and this is the real problem. Ukraine could win the war and lose the peace. They could become an aid dependent basket case like Afghanistan. And you know what? That country will then be weaker and more open to this. And look, I, I don't know what the Wall Street bankers are up to. You know, quite honestly, much like the Chinese and a lot of people, these people talk big and do nothing. But um, 
I think I do think Ukraine will be a good investment for for private sector investment after after the war, and I think that's the way the country should be built, and we should all want that. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Tomorrow is Election Day in the city of Chicago for mayor as well as aldermanic candidates. Uh, Jamal Green is making his second run for mayor. And in the uh, closing days of the campaign, as uh, all the other candidates were attacking Ron DeSantis, Jamal Green was focusing his attention on Cook County Commissioner and CTU Flack. Brandon Johnson. Yeah, there's a lot of things about him that we didn't know. Did you know that he's from Elgin and grew up in Aurora? Yes. I've said this repeatedly. My wife and I, we've had to cover our children multiple times as gunshots have rang right outside our front door. Brandon Johnson, one of the worst of them all, because he's a false flagger. He used these experiences and act like he has lived experiences in Chicago when he is from Elgin. He just got here, went to school in Aurora. And he talks about this one incident that happens on his block and why he should be mayor. He's trying to fool white progressives on the north side of Chicago that he cares about black people. When he don't, he's a commissioner. He's been a commissioner since 2018 on the west side. And the west side has the highest rates of poverty. And he hasn't done one thing about it. Beware of false flaggers. And one more thing. The other thing about Brandon Johnson is they're stealing teachers' dues to fund his campaign. Teachers take money out of their check to give to the union, and the vast majority of that money is going to politics. At the same time he's taking all of their teachers' dues, he's getting a salary from CTU from over $100,000 a year, including his salary as commissioner. Beware, he's one of the worst. J.M.L. Green joins us now, neighborhood advocate, 2023 candidate for mayor, on the ballot tomorrow. And, well, if you've ever voted early, you've already seen him on the ballot. GoGreenChicago.com. GoGreenChicago.com is his website. J.M.L., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Ma, I appreciate you guys for having me. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So um, he's not from Chicago. Well, I mean, Larry Lightfoot's from Ohio. Tony Preckwinkle was born That's in St. Right. Tony, Tony Preckwinkle <laughs> was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, what's. Do you have to be from Chicago to be mayor of Chicago? Well, no, I think my my main point in that video was that, you know, he he um when he's on a campaign trail, he tries to act like he's the blackest of of them all, right? Of mm-hmm. like uh, oh, I'm I'm changing my windows from bullets and I'm from Austin and we got it rough and my kids are, you know, right, you know, see he uses all of these different experiences. He never talk about his real experiences growing up. But he uses these experiences to try to relate to Chicagoans to make it seem like he has, you know, uh, um, uh, relatable experiences when really he doesn't. And so to me, it's like, all right, as somebody who's from these neighborhoods, who really has these experiences all my life, um, you know, compared to somebody who just got here, you know, probably a little over a decade ago, you know, it's it's a little, um, you know, disheartening and a kind of a slap in the face to us to like try to basically act like, 
you're one of us when it's, uh, you know, it's like, no, you know, it's okay to be from where you are, you know, own it, you know, but don't yeah. try to well, make it seem like it's something different. Yeah. And at the hideout the other night, he lied. Because remember, they, you know, they asked you all the candidates, you know, in this Chicago Axios Forum. It was, you know, kind of light, you know, lighthearted event. They asked him where he's from. He's in the Austin neighborhood. You know, so he lied. So, but anyway, the bottom line, he's been Cook County right. Commissioner up from the west side since 2018. And crime hasn't gotten any better. It's, in fact, it's gotten worse. Right. And my thing is, you know, with that, and I talk about that a lot because, you know, listen, he was puppeted to take that position. You know, honestly, it was Richard Boykin who was against Tony Preckwinkle for the sugar tax, and she wanted to take him out. So she went to the union, and they went and got Brandon Johnson to do so, and they barely won by like 100 votes. Uh, And since then, you know, it's just a, a dog and pony show. You know, they have the highest rates of violence on the west uh, on the west side, the highest rates of poverty on the west side, especially of children. The most children that are in poverty are on the west side without grocery store, without resources. And as a commissioner, you would think he would be active in that district. But the vast majority of that district have never seen him and don't even know who he is. And so it's one of those things of, you know, we, we keep on playing politics and they want to go seat to seat because they're trying to take the power and play political games uh, um, to you know, fight other other political powers uh, where we actually have people that are suffering in the meantime. Uh, so um, what was your experience growing up since you mentioned it? Yeah, I grew up, uh, um, you know, my dad was on the west side of North Lawndale. My mom was in Englewood as a single mother. So, um, you know, I saw everything firsthand, you know, actually being uh, almost shot multiple times. I lost many of my friends to gun violence. Many of my friends lived in abandoned buildings. Um, You know, I used to look out my window and see shootouts, and I would know who's doing the shootouts, right? Like, this is the environment that I grew up in. You know, the folks on the block who are on the corners selling the drugs. Um, You know, I knew all of the people in the neighborhoods who really needed a way out or needed a pathway forward. And I saw a lot of those same people, um, you know, uh, die. And uh, from gun violence, and many of them are not here today, and, and some of them are still on those on those corners in those neighborhoods. How'd you get out? Well, it was because you know I, I had a lot of people around me that made sure that uh, they pushed me, you know, uh, on the right path. Because as a troubled kid, I was getting kicked out of schools and um, you know going through a lot in, in my environment. But as a teenager, I had mentorship. I had um, programs uh, uh, like a summer summer camp. I went to summer camp every summer. Mm-hmm. We had different after-school programs, uh, um, you know, uh, Boy Scouts, mentoring organizations, and a lot of mentors. So that's why I really push youth investment so much because if I didn't have a lot of those key things, who knows where I would be. Uh, and that's why a lot of these young people who may be doing the right wrong things right now, if they got certain investment of certain people or programs that – can guide them in a different way, they can be, you know, somehow mayor of the city of Chicago one day. Now, hypothetically, if you lose tomorrow's election and there's a runoff between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson, who would you be backing? Man, you know, I, I, I would, <laughs> I'm going to say that I believe that that's not going to happen. Okay. Um, and I don't think there's a, a big chance of that happening opposed to what any of the media pundits would say. Um, you know, well, who's going to make the that, final two? I think that tomorrow that we're going to make, you know, the runoff. I'm not going to talk about who's the other person. Um, what the media is discounting is the media has discounted the non-voters as well. You know, the folks in the neighborhoods who usually don't vote, 
who are turning out in this election in high numbers because um, they finally have somebody that comes from them and from their neighborhoods. We know that we have our numbers that we need, uh, and we're just ready to shock them tomorrow because all of these, you know, bogus polls that they put out um, really have put a cap on the real voices of Chicago. The vast majority of people don't vote, and they've been disengaged. So to try to take a small sample of the very small percentage of people that vote um, is, is just, you know, it's an injustice to the political process. Well, let me ask it a different way. If um, you're the candidate uh, or there's any black candidate of the seven black candidates, a black candidate emerges in the runoff against Paul Vallis, because that's what it's going to be. Paul Vallis is going to be the other candidate in the runoff. Mm-hmm. Do you see mm-hmm. the uh, black and brown communities, the public sector unions, do you see a consolidation around whoever, let's say it's you, whoever that black candidate is against Vallis? Uh- well, it depends on who that candidate is. If it's me, I'll probably beat Vallis with the majority of the vote, 100 uh, percent guaranteed. But, you know, if it is, you know, somebody different, you know, it, it could be a different story. It's a different story if it's Willie Wilson or if, or, or if it's Brandon Johnson, um, you know, Why? or if it's Lori Lightfoot. Right. Because well, Lo- Lori Lightfoot, I know, because. Yeah, Lori Lightfoot is just she's completely upside down. But, but, right. but if it's somebody different other than sense. Lightfoot, why would it be different? Willie, Brandon, Roderick, whoever. Yeah, it would be different because, you know, like, for example, Willie Wilson is uh, very polarizing, right? And so you're going to have vast majority of the black leadership that's, that is going to be, you know, uh, scared or not want to really stand by him and would rather stay out. Um, so, you know, it just it just depends on who it is. If it's Brandon Johnson, he has a black problem. Brandon Johnson is not supported by black voters because black voters have never seen him. Um, and so this is uh, and black voters vote and support people that they know. And so he's going to have a hard time trying to convince people that, um, you know, he supports black people, um, black and brown people when he has no track record or accomplishment. So he'll have a hard time, I think, uh, on his end. Now, every candidate says that they're going to, you know, hire more police officers right away. I'm sure you're included in that. But what about dealing with no, Kim no, Fox no, and the, no. the root of the problem? No, you're not. Oh, you're not. Yeah, OK, no, tell no, me. I'm, tell me why. I'm not. the one. I'm the one that's not. <laughs> saying that, you know, because it's unrealistic to say, oh, we're just going to find these pool of, of officers. We got to be realistic. We have to start to do it works. And if we have a peer responder unit of social workers, right, that's one of the biggest things that I want to do is put $100 million on a peer responder unit of social workers to respond to mental health calls. That's going to take away 40% of the calls from police. So if they can respond to mental health or homelessness, which is almost half of the 911 calls. We put in a youth intervention department and hire youth interventionists that grab young people that drop out or um, get arrested. Um, and, and have the priority resources to mandate them to a mentoring organization and give them free counseling or housing so that they can have uh, um, a pathway to productivity, um, then we'll have a better way out. So getting young people off the streets, making sure they have youth jobs, opening up those schools throughout the day and on weekends, investing in safe spaces um, are some of the things that we're going to do. So, and having a reentry program for those who return home so that they have a better um, and remove all those barriers for them as well. So during the debates, and I understand the limitations of these candidate debates with 30 and 60 second responses, yeah. but, but everybody uses the word investment, 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 yep. and uses it generically. So what distinguishes the investments you want to make or the policies that you want to pursue with respect to public safety or economic opportunity? What distinguishes your policies? Maybe just give me one example from the rest of the field. Yeah. Well, what distinguishes mine is that, you know, when I when I use the word investment, that means that, you know, I'm looking to grow our city. 
And so um, when I say that we're going to use a single-family mortgage bond to back home loans in these underserved neighborhoods or have a public bank, right, uh, um, uh, and have a public bank um, so that we can invest in the home loans and the small businesses in these neighborhoods so that we can bring more homeowners back to the community. See, when you talk about the communities that have the less crime, you, the majority of people are homeowners. The, there's no vacancies in small businesses. The, the school system is uh, uh, quality. Um, you know, you have all of these different things. Even the, you know, you go to Lincoln Park, the dog's nicer in Lincoln Park. You know, I mean, everybody, everybody <laughs> nice in Lincoln Park. It's, it's not a lot of trauma. More, a lot of people have, have great stability and family structures and things of that sort. We have to bring that to these neighborhoods and make sure that we um, start to invest in people so that people can have ownership and a stake on their block and really care about what's going on with the schools uh, and create more safe spaces and small businesses. Is there is there a specific program uh, that you think should be replicated or scaled? You know, there's so many social service providers. There's so many programs. They keep being referred to the types of programs. But what, what's yeah. a success story that we can scale. I was watching CBS Sunday Morning uh, yesterday, okay. and they were profiling this uh, Roca program in Baltimore. Roca is Spanish for rock, and it's uh, mm-hmm. basically that the, uh, what they basically do is interventions uh, with uh, guys that are in trouble, uh, uh-huh. almost entirely black, but some Latino as well, um, and it's basically cognitive behavioral therapy. It's about teaching young men to have impulse control. And apparently, I mean, at least according to this profile, this program, it's showing some success with those who stay in the program. Is there something like that that you know of or have participated in? They say this is a model that we could replicate and scale around the city. Well, are you are you saying for a program that's already here or in another city? Because I know you've mentioned either e- either way, either way. So something you know to yeah. give us give us something to say, like point to something and say this works, and it just needs to be bigger or it needs to be replicated on a neighborhood basis. Well, you know what I'll say is, you know, there's a I have a few. Um, one is there's a program that they have in um, uh, Los Angeles and in, in Louisiana. Um, it is, you know, uh, um, I believe it's called Watchdogs, but it's about dads who actually are securing schools, that we have fathers who are volunteering their time oh, yeah. to come into the schools to patrol in the mornings throughout the day and after school to have a relationship with the kids that are, are moving around the school buildings. I think that is um, one of the biggest things because a lot of young people don't have fathers and to have a presence of the fathers in the neighborhood, in the schools, um, really, you know, uh, uh, can help a lot of those young people. So that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, um, youth jobs, right? And I know we use One Summer Chicago as an example when we talk about summer jobs. But that program needs to be, you know, changed and be year-round, right? We need more money for the, for the kids as well as it being year-round and allowing for kids as young as 13 years old to be able to participate uh, and small businesses, corporations, senior homes, uh, um, anywhere that is a place of, of, of uh, where things are going on, if they grab one of those young people for a certain amount of hours and a city will pay for them to be in that, in that um, facility um, to help out and learn new skills, right? We need to do that 13 to 25. That's another thing um, that I think is important. Uh, and we got to have – and another thing is we had a, a program in the Kiwani Prison 
where we taught, um, you know, those who are transitioning home business plans and uh, um, resume building and affirming them and inspiring them. And what we want to do is have a program embedded in our DLC and Cook County Jail to actually make sure that we're investing um, our, our time into those folks who are transitioning homes so that they have a pipeline of resources, that they have temporary housing, that they have a possible job opportunity, that they have what they need to get an ID and things of that sort so that they don't just go right back uh, to the streets um, and do the same thing over and over again. And so um, that's another thing that's important to me. You should check out uh, John Ponder's uh, Hope for Prisoners program out in Clark County, Nevada, on the uh, reentry sure. issue. Uh, Jamal sure. Green is a neighborhood advocate. He's also a candidate for Chicago mayor. On the ballot tomorrow, gogreenchicago.com is his campaign website. Jamal Green, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Punch yep. one. Thank you for always being a gentleman, right. classy guy, and he's first on the ballot no too. So, uh, and he joins us too on our Turnkey Dot Pro Answer Line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, more closing arguments from another mayoral candidate, Chicago mayoral candidate. He, of course, is Willie Wilson. You've heard on the show a number of times during the campaign, Chicago businessman on the ballot. uh, The website electwilliewilson.com. Willie joins us now. Willie, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Okay, Dan, how you doing? Amy, both of you guys. Good morning. So uh, we just talked to a J. Mall Green and um, talking about the question was about uh, if there is a black candidate who emerges uh, in the runoff with Paul Vallis, because it's going to be Paul Vallis and then somebody else. Will the uh, all the other black candidates and and sort of institutional support for black candidates, will it uh, fold in with whoever that candidate is, whether it be you or Jamal or Brandon Johnson? Um, will it be uh, black and brown versus white in the runoff? Well, you know, Dan, I, I'm I'm really not even interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in all Chicago, whether you're black, brown, white, Asian American. I, you know, I'm from the Jim Crow days, and I had enough of that. I'm not going to bring it here and continue this uh, with. Up north, I think somebody had to bring us all together and 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 uh, look at people like they are and and give everybody equal opportunity, equality for uh, everything that the system takes in uh, in office. I mean, that's why we've been campaigning in so many different uh, areas in Chicago. I I I I really don't even look at it that way. I don't even look at it that way when we get into conversation like that. I just. Um, Say forget it. You know, it, it's all of it. It's all of it. Chicago. You know. What do you say to critics who who were just upset or just bewildered by the fact that you bought people gas and bought people you know groceries at a time of need? You know, under this Biden administration with rising inflation rates. Um, what do you say to them? Well, based on line for for those guys, um, I've been doing it uh, since uh, I guess nineteen and eighty. If you look at the Front page article on the Wall Street Journal in 1996. I was, we was giving away millions of dollars then. Um, I just refuse to stop now. 
I, I mean, like people's hungry out here, and people need gas to get to work. Uh, we done given it away, uh, I guess, in the last 35, 40 years. It takes six or seven million dollars around the country. Um, and I'm not running for mayor in all those different places. You know, and, and everything that I say really is documented, so it's easy to find. Um, and, and, you know, people out here, um, the president, even giving student loan. What about him? The governor. What about them raising, doing things and they get ready to get elected? But I've been consistent. You know, so they're going to complain whether you do do good or do bad. So I just decided, look, I'm going to just do good. Let them complain when we do good. You know, you're one of the more successful black businessmen in Chicago. Um, why don't we see other business leaders in Chicago endorsing black, white, or other endorsing your candidacy? Uh, you know, I I, I really, um, Dan, I, I don't even really take any money from anybody. What are you pretty much black or white. If you want to give $500, $1,000, bucks, a few dollars here and there, that's fine. But uh, $100,000, uh, million bucks, I would not take that. I, I, I just don't think that that is the right way to go for me. No, you know, no, I, but, but, I but, well, th I'm not talking about just campaign donations. I mean, why don't we see John Rogers, for example, standing uh, behind a podium with you saying, Willie Wilson's my guy or other business leaders in the city? Well, what it based what I was coming to with that comment was that I'm I'm not that interested in it. To be honest with you, those those guys do what they do. I go to the community and you know the grassroots of the community help those who really needs it uh, to get up with me and they don't help the community. I'd rather not even have them up there. You know, uh, well, so I, I don't really run in that kind of that circle. Like, and I'm not knocking one way or another, but I, I just don't. Don't okay. uh, I don't care, even care for it, you know? Okay, fair. But so, so then, so then, how do you put together a broad-based coalition, or do you feel you have put together a broad-based coalition to get into the runoff tomorrow? We put. Uh, we know we we've been endorsed by the uh, the Congress of Polish, uh, uh, American, the, the Italian, uh, American. Um, you know that. Tina, uh, Minister Coalition, and the Filipina. I think we did a good job of that. And and we have a lot of quality African-American people as well, Minister. But um, I, I think we got to go get the people first, you know, and let the people take then, um, then, then, then straighten the rest of it out. I, I think that we've done that in business. We've done that in business worldwide. And my business is not just you know catered to African American, catered to everybody, uh, even international. And we we done a good job of that. We 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 just don't we just don't take you know for self. We give a hundred percent of every penny we make now to to the community. And so I think we can put it together by putting the community together, let the community accept you uh, by showing your good deed and your good work. And after you do that. Then they would they would come together. I mean, I like the policemen. I find pro policemen, I'm pro community too. I hold everybody accountable. But but yet now it is used to not always been that way. I had to get out here and work hard and and show first that hey, here's what I'm about. And once people find out what I'm about, and then I find out what them about, then we we be able to pull things together and come together and uh, and make things work. Now, you and a number of candidates, not all candidates, are pro-police, want to hire more police officers. But the real problem is the revolving door at 26 and Cal and with Kim Fox's office. If you're elected mayor, 
what are you going to do to stop that? Well, I, you know, it, 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 well, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna back a minute. It, it, I'm, I'm pro police. I'm pro community. I'm pro everybody being held accountable. I, I think what have happened is that this is a Democrat or Republican. A lot of times, the people who Democrat go with the Democratic Party. A lot of Republicans go with Republican too. I'm just pro people. So it ain't one person issue. It, it, it is a big issue. Of course, the Democrats have been in charge for I don't know how many years in, in Illinois. Um, so we we got issue. I think it's more than just Kim Fox. Kim Fox goes with the party, and, and, you know, other people go with the party also. We just don't communicate together. I I, I really believe that. And I understand that, that, look, people don't like what she do, and I happen to know Kim Fox. And I, I agree and disagree with some of the things that she does, you know, and same thing with uh, it was with the Daily and other people, too. I, I'm I'm kind of like pro people. I just believe we can pull it together if we talk and communicate more together. I, I, I think it's bigger than, than her. I think it, it, it's an assistant. It's some people, it, it's an assistant. We don't attack, attack the assistant, then we can't make it work. So we had to take an attack, uh, take a look at that approach and get that straightened out. And then I think people would fall in line. One last thing, too, is how can you ever get a system straightened out? Like, you, you got most of the politicians running for office, not only for mayor, but other things, too. But in this case, mayor, they're taking a paycheck from the citizen where people can't even buy eggs to, 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 to eat breakfast in the morning for the kids. And they're taking a paycheck, and they're giving themselves a raise. Like this, this mayor now, she she giving herself an automatic raise, where she won't be there enough to enjoy it after tomorrow night. And the other politicians doing it too. That's a system situation that we have to all got to work on and get straightened out. I, I I just think that that's what our biggest problem is. I don't think it's one person. I think it's a system that we got to work on and get straightened out. So you, would you not take a salary? Would you not accept campaign contributions from public sector unions if you're mayor? No, no way. I, I do not accept. I would not take a salary, period. And I've said that all along. I'm not, I'm not looking for a salary. I'm not looking for to be owned by by union or anybody else. I think that's one of the problems that, that is wrong with, with all of us, that if we start taking money not only from union but big business and things of that nature, look, sometimes we can get out of perspective. You know, I, I think the union has got to have an equal opportunity, equality for all citizens. Uh, I, I just don't want to be, I think I'm the only candidate that's not bought. You know, but look, I don't I don't dislike union. I don't dislike nobody. I just think we got to get it right in order that all of us can make sure that we can uh uh, have a make a good living with our families and things like that. So I think it's a matter of communication because I communicate a lot with unions stuff like that. But if they come up and give me a million bucks, no, I I, I politely say I don't think so. I I have my own money. If I didn't have my own money, maybe a different thing. But I have my own money. It says I'm so used to giving. I'd rather just continue to do that. When it, when you talk about the system, it reminds me a little bit of this piece we referenced earlier in the show. Michael Moritz, who is a uh, billionaire in San Francisco, wrote this piece in the New York Times. Even Democrats like me are fed up with San Francisco. <coughs> Excuse me. And he writes, San Francisco has become a prize example of how we Democrats have become our own worst enemy. Causes we've long espoused, 
respect for human rights, housing that's within reach for most people, care for the mentally ill, have all been crippled by a small coterie who knows how to bend governments to its will. Uh, He says that San Francisco has become subject over the last 40 years to a tyranny of the minority. Uh, Is that what you're saying when you're talking about the system in Chicago, how it operates? Well, basically, basically, uh, 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 I'm talking about this here. It, it, yeah, pretty much. But basically, I'm talking about look, um, the 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 government's supposed to be government by the people, not by its party. You know, I I I don't. Uh, I I just think that the 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 government the the, the uh, people have begun to. Governor, everything, uh, the rules, the regulations have forgotten about the people and have shut them out. And, you know, so it's, 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 it's kind of like that. I think that it's broken. Uh, but, but then again, too, Dan, I think that my background from where I come is totally different than anybody else that I know of in, in politicians today. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm from, uh, South. I was raised in Jim Crow. I got seventh grade education, man, with my home. I've seen it all pretty much. And and I look at things like look, our only thing that we had to live for and have a hope was through our our faith and our faith in Christ and, and, and keep us going and try to keep us focused and get a foundation in place. And I I I, I live by that, but I also have common sense that where it's need to be at. And, and and look at the human being first before I look at the party and anything else. I think that that is why we we're, we're missing that. I've I've had no issue being up north. Many many times I've been up uh, north lately uh, with white up there, Filipino, and everybody else up there. Um, but I had the opportunity to get up there, and we've been talking and and getting along just fine. I've had no issue. Prior to that, I didn't allow myself to get out of my environment, so I drew my own conclusion, which I which which was actually wrong because I didn't get a chance to allow myself to get out there and find out what what are some of those issues. Why do people think this way? Why did they do this and do that? And I come to the conclusion is that look, you don't put the party first versus the people, and we we must all look at people as human beings regardless of what our issues are, and get together and talk and work them out. You got you uh, received a lot of criticism from other candidates for uh, when you were talking about public safety. You talked about chasing criminals down like rabbits, and uh, that you know was seen as uh, I guess lacking uh, concern or callousness. Do you regret that statement? No, I do not. Let me say what I I, I, I said. I had a, I had a twenty year old kid shot and killed by gun violence. Um, Today, a lot of people get um, their kid, loved one, shot and killed, um, and nobody would catch him. Oh, that's what I'm relating to. Nobody, nobody catched him, and they just contain the next day or next month, continue to go and kill people, and that's wrong. I, I think that this administration here is more concerned about the people who who uh, commit the crime, the something that that is. Versus the one for the victor, uh, I, I get tired of seeing people uh, lower their, their 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 kid down into the down into the grave. That's hurt, you know. And and nobody get caught. All all this administration do right now is just complaint, you know. I, look, I, I, if anybody understand 
uh, races and things of that nature. It's me, you know. Um, I, and so, so that statement that I made, I, I stand by that. Uh, you have to catch these uh, particular people. And when I said chase down like like a rabbit caught, look, you you must catch these people. Chicago is 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 um is scared. Uh, everybody's scared. Uh, they broke in my car at a service station a few months back, and I knew they was out there, and, and I didn't go out there and do anything about it. I just let them take what they wanted to take. And they, um, Mayor Lightfoot, I didn't want the problem. Yeah, I'm glad you're okay from that. And Mayor Lightfoot recently said it's going to be a two-person race between her and Paul Vallis. Why is she wrong? Well, nobody going. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot got into uh, tomorrow. And she'd be gone. Mark my words, like. And you said you'd you know, help her pack and go move back to Ohio. I saw you when you were at uh, you were attending a church service well, last yeah, weekend. I, I <laughs> it was pretty comical. I mean, it was <laughs> tough, yeah. pay for the moving costs. Yeah, you said yeah, you'd so have police help her yeah. escort her out of the state. Back to Ohio. She don't belong in Chicago. You know, she's not Chicago. She 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 mixed up. She confused. Um, this lady came. Even have her own people to work for her. The policemen turn their back against her, the people who protect us. You know, um, this, this lady have total lawsuit. You know, and uh, I made a hell of a mistake when I, uh, I when I supported that woman. You know, and and I re- I regret it. And and so she's gone after tomorrow night. And, and I don't know who's going to win the race tomorrow night, but I intend to win it myself. Uh, we feel good about where we at. You know, so far, but but nevertheless, um, um, whichever way it comes out, it comes out. We'll help, but I I say that we're gonna win, and I think some of these polls, I, I've never seen a ridiculous poll like they've been. I, I it don't make sense. Uh, you know, they got you up one day, they got you down, they all cross. But most of the polls, I think, is lack of uh, these owners and lack of integrity, because they support the candidate and they do their own poll. You know, I, I you know so. You know, our poll tells us different, but I don't even put them out. I, I just say, hey, look, we, 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 we go ahead and do our thing. But no, the mayor is gone out tomorrow night. You, uh, we won't have to worry about her no more. All right. I'm not sure Ohio wants to take her back either, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Willie Wilson, <laughs> a Chicago businessman. He's mayoral candidate, as everyone knows. ElectWillieWilson.com is the campaign website. Willie, thanks for joining us. Good luck tomorrow. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate y'all. Yeah, God bless. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Final answer on the Chicago mayor's race, particularly for most of our listeners, Vallis versus Wilson, because that's where a lot of center-right voters were, mm-hmm. were 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 situated, and we're trying to make a decision between those two candidates. Take your calls on that. Uh, Paul Vallis uh, and everyone else on the trail over the weekend. Vallis saying uh, this yesterday. Because I've really run an Ishuri campaign, and I've avoided being detracted by petty attacks and things like that. Yeah, I mean, except petty attacks on Ron DeSantis, and by extension, center-right voters who are supporting him. Forgot to mention that, didn't he? (laughs) Yeah, oh, there's that. Steve uh, Huntley, former 
editorial page editor of the Chicago Sun-Times. I think that was prior to its AFL-CIO NPR ownership days. Uh, Writing over at JohnCastNews.com about uh, Vallis. Throw in in the belief that Vallis is the frontrunner in the primary race and you get distracting, untrustworthy, and false rhetoric campaign tying to Vallis to DeSantis. Right. However, he also said, Vallis responded with a denunciation of the Florida governor that would have made President Biden, the Progress Squad in Congress, and the New York Times proud. He echoed the lies, misinformation, and disinformation about the common-sense approach DeSantis pursues in defending traditional American and family values. It wasn't Vallis's finest hour, but he can perhaps be forgiven as he's locked in a do-or-die battle for the future of Chicago. Well, I know that's what some people think. That's fine. That, that's, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. No, I've I forgiven it. him. No, of course. I understand that um, for uh, a lot of center-right voters in Chicago, uh, self-respect is a foreign experience. So I no, I have self-respect. That to be embraced. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I I'm that, fine. I, I can go that, to sleep with myself. I wouldn't, that, I, I wouldn't that expect that to be embraced at this point. Um, so, yeah, so that's fine. And, um, you know, feel free to call in. And I, I love the uh, – please, please, um, I, I wish the um, – social media warriors, um, those Starbucks samurai types, would uh, call in to, to give me the who and what for with respect to, you know, anything of substance, which probably wouldn't happen, but it would be more on the order of um, where I reside and um, I'm monomaniacal was one comment in my denunciation of Alice. It's very interesting, the um, mm-hmm. the context here, the lack of context from a lot of these Vallis supporters that are <laughs> knee-jerk defenders of this difficult position they're trying to abide. Uh, because, of course, it ignores, say, I don't know, um, the last four months of the campaign where Vallis was on the program many times, where he co-hosted when I was many times. absent, uh, when I suggested Vallis and Wilson, when I was complimentary of Vallis's public policy chops, when I even suggested uh, approaches he should be taking to position himself for total victory looking past February 28th to April 4th, uh, like, for example, trying to aid Lori Lightfoot's campaign, since I believe he's the only candidate that she can actually defeat. But, of course, that we just throw all that aside. Now, I, it's funny, I didn't get the same pushback from those Vallis supporters then, but I'm getting it now. I wonder if my residency would have mattered, my ability to vote in the mayor's race. I wonder if it would have mattered if I was supporting Vallis for those same people. Actually, no, I don't wonder. Because that's, you know, again, like I said before, that's the position uh, that people are trying to rationalize. And it's a difficult one. So I understand the, the intellectual challenges with that. I'm very considerate of it. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636-DA, turnkey.pro. Text. And apparently, uh, Paul, unavailable the last week to come on this show to make his closing argument, Amy? Yeah, he's uh, busy. Uh-huh. And so is Mayor Lightfoot. And so is Brandon Johnson. I've reached out to all of them. So is Chewy Garcia, who won't even talk to me. That, that guy runs for me like I'm the bubonic plague. And he's a congressman. Grow up. Um, right. Who else won't come on? So so, so then so then Paul Vallis should grow up, too? Well, Paul Vallis is, uh, is busy, Dan. So, so is he, yeah, right, Paul you, Vallis, you don't believe that. So, so should Paul Vallis grow up or not? Um, I think Paul Vallis is of sound mind, body, and soul, and he's an adult. And I just think that I don't think it's going to help his campaign to come on the show at this point. He's been on so many times. You know what happened. He's not denying it. 
he doubled down on it too. Doubled down on it. You know, Thursday night at the hideout, because of course they asked him about it. They asked everybody else fluff questions and they attacked Vallis. Oh, um, it's, it's attack when you when they ask him to stand by what he said. That's an attack. No, 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 you. no. The, the, every candidate was you know briefs, briefs or boxers. It was stupid stuff. And then when him was you know what's your take on Paul Vallis and why are you accepting the FOP? endorsement and blah, blah, blah. It was harder stuff. So mm-hmm. we know what the left is doing. Chuy Garcia is not an adult, but Paul Vallis is, based on the same standard of whether or not he'll Paul, come on to make an argument. Paul Vallis at least won't run from me. I mean, He, he runs from the show. He runs from me now because, because I'm being less than complimentary based on what he's done, not based on anything else other than what he's done. By the way, the idea that uh, this is just a Ron DeSantis uh, issue is not the case. Uh, we've mentioned uh, several of Paul Vallis's uh, problematic uh, incidents where, when it came to uh, being an adult uh, and defending what you do and what you believe and showing some spine. I mean, four months ago, it was Awake, Illinois. All those uh, parents who are part of Awake, Illinois, Shannon Adcock's group, uh, he threw them under the bus, too, when he was challenged on attending a forum that included Awake, Illinois. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of incidents to point to. It's not a singular one. But, but you go ahead, and uh, people can ignore all that stuff, and I, I place your uh, hopes and dreams uh, as they are for Chicago on Paul Vallis. That's fine. Vallis versus Willie Wilson. I, see, I disagree with Willie on uh, certain things. He also denounced FOP for inviting DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and said that Vallis should... Um Re, you know, uh, reject their endorsement of him. Right. And uh, he's for reparations. He proposed reparations. We had him on the show when he did uh, way back to talk about that. Obviously, I disagree with him on that issue. But um, Willie Wilson is who he is. Who's Paul Vallis? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Mike. Good morning. I'm... I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. No. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I'm. I'm beyond frustrated. Frustrated lost me about a month ago. I'm disgusted. I'm sick and tired of election after election. We get our difference between voting for dog poop, horse poop, rat poop, and cat poop. This is ridiculous. Who do we have to vote for? And then when we finally do get a choice, like Kutcher and Bailey. Guess what? We vote for the Democrats. It's it's it's. It's hopeless. I know. So let's not make the it's same fine. mistake twice and vote for Paul Vallis. Well, in a primary uh, in particular, this is your opportunity to vote for who you think it should be, uh, not who you okay. think it will be. That's what primaries are for. Um, so that's what I would say in response to whether if you're still considering Vallis versus Wilson, for example, there's always the opportunity now to vote for who you think it should be. And then after the results are in tomorrow, then you have a binary choice. Ron, Southside. Danny and Amy. Uh, you know, no, we don't have to hear Paul Dallas. One thing about all of these candidates, the more you hear them, the more uh, uh, their flaws are exposed. So you know what I'm doing, you all? I'm really paying close attention to these automatic races. So that's going to be an entire different dynamic. So I'm looking at the legislative body. But real quick, regarding... Uh, Willie Wilson. After a while, there becomes a perception of elected officials who are losers. And when I tell his supporters that I was looking at him, that he is not 
electable. And guys, I've been around with politics for miles. A guy named uh, Doc Walls, and Doc Walls, he just yeah. ran, 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 and he almost had a disdain for me because I told him the same thing. You you can't you haven't won anything. So I, I like Willie Wilson, but check. But this is it. Being a a successful businessman, uh, philanthropist does not necessarily translate to you being an uh, elected official to be an electable. So I, so that's it. So uh, I, I, I this is one of the worst uh, choices have to make. And and, and lastly, guys, Jamal Green, please. Uh, I, 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 so if you can't run for Alderman, or oh, you just going to be, become mayor from being. Uh, I, I guess what the, an, an activist. I just be glad when this is pretty much. Uh, well, over. But keep look at Obama. Like, yeah, thanks for the call, Ron. I mean, look at look at Obama. He was a community activist. He became president of the United States. You can see where the young people get it. He's a state rep and state senator. Yeah, but you don't have to do yeah, anything. U.S. senator. Well, state state senator, not state rep. State senator, a U.S. senator. You you don't have to you don't have to do anything. You have to accomplish anything to win office. And you can accomplish a lot and not win office. That's right. Beauty pageant. And in Chicago, we invariably put square pegs in round holes, don't we? Cheryl Midway. Uh, Hi. Um, You know, being from Chicago, we're stuck with voting for Democrats. And for me, it's the lesser of the nine evils, and so that's Paul Vallis. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for the call, Cheryl. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, just just uh, the lesser of two evils. I've mentioned this before. Um, this That same argument being made on behalf of Paul Vallis was made on behalf of Lori Lightfoot four years ago. So I just say the lesser of two evils or nine evils, um, you may not be right. You may not be right. The moral certainty that uh, Vallis is the lesser of nine evils. Maybe. Maybe not. Greg Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, the last couple of days I've seen Paul Vallis' commercials, and it's all about LGBT stuff. And, you know, he was for LGBT uh, marriage before Biden was. What what a what an accomplishment. And then he, and then he ends the commercial with, uh, you know, he's pro-abortion and will uh, allow people to come here from other states so that they can get abortions all the way through, uh, you know, their nine months. It's just... That guy's a despicable human being, as far as I'm concerned. I voted Saturday. Willie's my man, and uh, we'll see what happens. You guys have a good one. Thanks for the call, Greg. Yeah, Paul Vallis won't come on this show to confront my criticisms directly, but he'll make snide comments about me at uh, fundraisers at white shoe law firms in the city. That's a fact. And it, I don't well, care Well, you don't like si- him, and he doesn't like you, so what? You, may, you, you comment on him on the air? He has right to free speech. You can comment, too. I'm sorry, did I say anything about his right to free speech? Did I say anything about his comments no, just... about me? Did I say anything about his right to comment on me? Well, you just no, sounded this... like you were annoyed that he was talking about you. At... No, no, I'm, I, I could care less. I don't care about the snide comments that Vallis supporters make about me, the off the, the indefensible ones, the non-factual ones. I, I don't care. I care about somebody showing you who they are and people who blithely ignore someone showing you who they are. That's the issue. Not his right to free speech. Okay. Not his right to criticize right. me. Right. If he wants to criticize me, come here and criticize me. No problem. You have he a will floor come on criticize again. me. Trust me. He promises he will come on again. No, he won't. That's fine. But that's fine. I don't. I don't care. I'm. I don't. The idea that that we care, that I spend my time worrying about somebody who's coming on the show or not. All that I care about is helping people understand 
who people are by providing them information they don't otherwise have. That's the point. Brad in West Loop. Yeah, hey, Dan and Amy. Um, sorry, Amy, most of the time I'm with you, but I think Dan's you know, convincing me against Paul Vallis. I actually went to one of his events in the West Loop um, at the Greek uh, Greek oh, yeah, Islands time, and yeah. heard him. Yeah, I heard him talk there, and and yeah, I mean, he's you know, he says he's well. The whole thing with DeSantis, the I don't know, just all his liberal social stuff is bubbling to the surface now, and it's just turning me off. And and the more I look at uh, Willie Wilson, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, this guy, like Dan says, you know, you know who he is. He's not taking any money. He's an independent. Um. Uh, you know, I kind of got to go with Willie Wilson. All right. Thanks for the Good call, choice. Brad. I mean, just again, in terms of some institutional knowledge to bring to the table. I mean, Paul Vallis <laughs> in 2014 was Pat Quinn's lieutenant governor candidate. The kind of judgment that is illustrated by deciding to run as Paul, as a Pat Quinn's running mate, Pat Quinn, particularly after his tenure with Rod Blagojevich and then a couple years as governor. And Pat Quinn's backing Chewy Garcia. Well, right. But I mean, that's just even like, backing Dallas. It's just uh, it's just, you know, I, you 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 want it so bad. You're willing to say and do anything. And that's going to stop when you get it. It won't. Just telling you. I mean, that's just that's the percentage play. There's always a chance, but that percentage play, as we've seen play out over and over and over again, is who people are when they're running and the character they demonstrate is who people will be if and when they're elected. Peggy in Chicago. Peggy. Hi. I have the feeling that <laughs> I, I'm standing outside Auschwitz, the death camp at Auschwitz. That's a little over the top. Oh, on, you get baby. you get your vote. You, you get to vote that. for the commandant. You know, it's like I have a feeling I don't have much of a choice. You know, and it's like I I think if well, I feel pretty hopeless about it, obviously. But I was thinking, if I don't have a choice and I don't have a chance, why don't I do something remarkable, like have a write-in candidate? Um, it's a throwaway Amy vote, Jacobson. But... No. Yeah. No. Well, you know, no. if no. your if your vote is is not going to count, you're going to get a you're going to get a creep anyway, whichever one you get. And the city's on fire, man. You know, and like Lori Lightfoot failed. Okay, she failed. But anybody who takes her place is going to inherit the same fire. The city yeah, is on fire. We have put it out. We have a he ha, we have a terrible problem here. And people don't listen. I'm in Rogers Park. Rogers Park was a great place to live. We had homeless people move in, and the police told the aldermen, they said, listen, these people are on drugs. They are going to be a problem for you. You had better move them out. And the aldermen said, no, we won't do that because that would be unkind. Well, yeah. you're going to have consequences for this. We've had, yesterday we had a murder in daylight. It's the second one. And the police told them and told them and told them, and they wouldn't listen. Thanks for the call, and Peggy. And Peggy, don't compare anything to the Holocaust, please. Art and Skokie. 
um, yeah, hi, Dan. I mean, I appreciate, but yeah, this, this, comparing it to Holocaust is disgusting. Yes. And yeah. Willie Wilson is a man. I believe Willie Wilson is a real Christian. And of course, yeah, maybe all his positions maybe are not perfect, but he, he at least you know where he stands. And and I got, um, my uh, relative got that flyer from Paul Wallace, and the people who endorse him are really some sickos, like the Deb Lynch lady. And I don't like to come, you know, talk about how women look like, but that lady Deb Lynch, she looks really scary, and she's hardcore for abortion, and also that uh, LGBT Chamber of Commerce, you know. Uh, on the flyer, you know, for Paul Wallace. Mm-hmm. So if he allows those people to endorse him, you know, you, you know where, where he stands, what he's going to do when he get, gets elected. Thanks for the car. No, he's going to walk away from them all. He's going to walk away from them all and say, oh, no, I can't. I'm done with you now, too, like I was done with the center-right voters. I'm going to ma- make a mockery of your support like I've made a mockery of theirs. Okay, maybe. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Either way, how does that wa- how does that wash out? How does that wash out exactly in terms of the ability to get all of these things done that he says he's going to get done? Because, you know, those leftists that are supporting him, you think they're on board for these other things? When it comes to policing and K through 12 reform. Okay. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773 467 Five six hundred to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.